Welcome to another week of Editing Loud with some of South Africa's finest minds joining us to discuss the news issues of this week. Um, and this week we've had a lot of news from ESCOM, perhaps the biggest threat to the country. Warren Thompson is with us today. He interviewed Andre de Reiter yesterday, who's the incoming CEO. Um, Warren, what were your thoughts about Andre de Reiter? Um, I think uh, Andre de Reiter, he, he looks really very well versed uh, in the challenges facing ESCOM and, and frankly admitted to us that uh, the problems and the solutions are well known. It's very much a case he sees his job as executing on uh, the commitments that Eskom has made to fix itself. And the, the, the real feeling I got is that uh, he deep down, even though his, his qualifications, he, he's, a, he's a lawyer by training, uh, the feedback that we got from a lot of the staff that we spoke to uh, at places that he'd worked before, including Sassel and Nampak, is that he likes to get deeply enmeshed in the operational details um, and, and workings of the company. So what I think we are going to find from the new Eskom CEO, as he indicated uh, in his words yesterday, but also from the profile that we've built of him in, in the FM, is that he's going to take a real hard look at the nuts and bolts workings of Eskom, and it's his absolute number one priority to get the grid stable by um, managing the maintenance of this aging fleet of coal-fired power stations that we have, and getting that stable and then uh, he will say we will save money from uh, burning diesel, etc., etc. But that that certainly is going to be the top priority for him uh, in the in the days and weeks ahead. You know, he had a patchy record at Nampak. I think the share price fell 81% during his tenure there. Um, there's some people who are not entirely convinced he's the right man for the job, and he seems to have no political clout potentially, and and was was a, was a rank outsider for this job. I mean, to what extent can this guy do this? Do you think what are the odds are that he can succeed? I think that. You say the solutions are known. I don't think they are entirely known. Right. He, he, yes, he, he did have a bit of a mixed bag at NAMPAC, and I think the context was important. He inherited a company uh, when he began in uh, 2014 that was highly indebted. It was coming to the end of a capital expansion program that had seen it invest in facilities in places like Angola and Nigeria. Those seem to have been very good assets, but what happened when, as he took over is that the uh, oil price fell precipitously from over $100 a barrel to under 30 in the space of 18 months. And for oil-dependent countries that generate um, much of their tax revenues from taxing oil companies, obviously those, those revenues fell. And in places like Angola, they physically could not find the dollars to, to exchange to repatriate the money from South Africa. So he had a, a company highly indebted. It was also paying a very rich dividend. And they couldn't get the money back from these investments that they'd made in Nigeria and Angola owing to this liquidity crisis as a result of the oil price. So for the first few years it was touch and go and he had to undertake uh, a range of transactions, for instance selling a, um, part of the property portfolio to get money onto the balance sheet. He also suspended the dividend, the dividend never returned. Um, so he had a lot to deal with that was outside of his control when he took over, but he also did make missteps. I think uh, they tried to get the performance of the glass business right, um, but ultimately they, they impaired that and then uh, sold it. I think, so, so he does have skills, that, that experience he said, handling a very constrained balance sheet is, is a skill that, uh, and an experience he can bring to the Eskom table. Of course, the, the debt and the balance sheet is um, much, much greater. But he's also spent most of his career at Sassel, where he almost became chief executive and was pipped to the post by David Constable. Um, and that knowledge of the coal market uh, and the coal industry in South Africa is vital 
to uh, his job in restoring this, this grid. So yes, there are pros and cons. He is an established executive. Um, he, he, sounded, uh, um, he sounded very clear about what he needed to do. Um, but of course, the proof is always in the pudding. Karen Warren, thanks for joining us. Um, well, I think you raised the valuable point, which you haven't responded to. And that's the political issue. Because exactly. ESCOM is not a business. It's a, it's a political, it's a kind of living embodiment of incoherence on the part of the ANC over SOEs. And that lack of kind of cohesiveness, a kind of clear vision on what you want to do, like manifests itself in everything from issues around, you know, whether or not you break the business up, whether or not you do job cuts, where you go in terms of your energy mix, that embarrassing debacle with the IRP that was released where we got the wrong one and then it was changed and just an incoherence on what you want to do. And, and I think that, you know, you can't, you know, I, I really admire this man because, I mean, this is not just a poison chalice. This is like an entire this, this is the poisoned country, box right? wine. Do you know what I'm saying? And now he's walking into this and, and mm. that political issue issue is very big for ESCOM because they need to decide what exactly they do going forward in terms of these big um, you know, systems questions. And, and a lot of them, they seem paralyzed in terms of things like you know, substantive job cuts, which is something that they've been alerted to that they need to do for, for quite a while now. And job cuts are a political issue because you can't slash the 66% that the, that the World Bank thinks that ESCOM is overstaffed by without massive political consequence. And we also have these scenarios where there, where you know, there have been um, alleged sabotage or power, you know, power outages linked to industrial action. So it's on a, a tenterhook, and no one seems to really know what to do. And you need decisive leadership. The ANC seems quite cohesively split down the middle. We now see these calls for the resignation of of Prabin Gordon, which mm. is a clear manifestation of a political divide within the ANC. And and how do you manage that if if your own party, the ruling party? of the country is clearly using the ESCOM issue to try and force out, uh, you know, a person that they, you know, certain factions within the party can't stand, then, you know, you, you're dealing in a very, very choppy seas because people don't, there's no culture of what is the bigger picture? How do we move the forward uh, forward? And how do we, we make those tough choices that we're going to have to make for the ultimate economic survival, not just of, of ESCOM, but of South Africa, because as you mentioned, it's the biggest threat to the South African economy. It's sovereign debt leak to ESCOM is insane. But there's none of that. It's, a, it's been a constant little point scoring battle. And literally, we have moved from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis, um, to the point where you have board members of ESCOM also saying we need to be honest with the country in parliament and, and say we're going to have eight months of, of power cuts. So that, that, you know, that sort of failure to acknowledge reality, I think, is, is also a big problem there. I think that's one of the issues you'll have to deal with is the political influence that he's had. The political interference is going to be massive. But in our, in our story, our, our cover story this week, um, we did say that Andre de Reiter has the worst job in the country. And I think to some people that might be correct. But I think the person who probably now has the worst job in the yes. country <laughs> is Sekinati. Oh, man! Woo! And this is because as of today, we learned that you have been appointed the, the spokesperson for ESCOM, for the worst company in the country. Um, wh what happened? How did, how did that happen? Well, uh, in short, I was offered a job and I accepted the job offer. It's an opportunity to go uh, help rebuild the institution. Uh, I'm sure nobody in this country will deny that, particularly this 
organization here, Times Media, in its various publications, including the two before me right now, the Financial Mail and Business Day, were quite instrumental in turning ESCOM around in terms of the management, the clean up of the uh, of all the corruption that was happening there. Now there's a there's a, there's a new team. Uh, hopefully, uh, we it's it's it's, it's look it's. it's it's an opportunity to serve from within. Uh, we, we have done what we could from outside. There is an opportunity to rebuild and be part of the effort. My personal is, theory this on this is literally they were like, who's the most problematic person in the press conference? <laughs> exactly. Let's give this man a job. <laughs> I can't wait for this one to have to answer the question. The great Stalin move. Keep, yes, your, exactly. keep your friends close and, and your, your enemies, enemies closer. Even closer. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you were the worst critic. You talk about these publications doing a lot to expose what happened. You, you were, were pivotal to that, them. yeah. I mean, is it gonna, not going to be difficult? Have you not made enemies within ESCOM? I, I can't. I, look, guys, I, 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 thank you for, for, <laughs> for the compliments. But I can't, I can't take the compliment. It was really a team effort. I mean, we worked together uh, on this and, and, and on all the things. It's, it's, it's really been a team effort. All of Times Media was focused on ESCOM. The Sunday Times was a big part of it, and ourselves at Business Day and Financial Mail were a big part of it. So uh, now they obviously noticed and thought, that one probably understands ESCOM best. Let's get him in here. Let's get him inside the tent. Let's get him inside the <laughs> tent so he can do his things f uh, facing the other way. <laughs> so, I mean, we talked about Andre de Reiter as a person. You've obviously interacted with him a lot, I suppose, in the last couple of weeks. I mean, what's your impression? Does he have what it takes? I mean, obviously now, knowing that you're the ESCOM spokesman, you will say yes. Uh, look, look that, that's, that, that's, that's not a question so for me to answer. But uh, a few months ago, the board of ESCOM and indeed the shareholder in the, in the form of the, the minister of Public Enterprises and the committee and cabinet uh, uh, delegated by Cyril Ramaphosa was presented with quite a few candidates and they chose him. Uh, uh, so that answers the question. I mean, is it not going to be very difficult? You know, Karen spoke about the, the jobs issue. I mean, you have unions at ESCOM that are very powerful and you have a lot of political influence because the shareholder is government who has an influence, who has an interest in jobs not disappearing. I mean, how difficult is that going to be to navigate for the company? It's, it's absolutely been quite difficult for the previous management of ESCOM, uh, the, the management team led by Pagamani Hatebe and the board led by uh, Jabu Mabuza, who are now both out mm. after nearly 24 months of service. Uh, they, they, they were asked by, by, by the government, they said, go to ESCOM, stop the rot, stabilize the company, kick out those corrupt executives, which they did. Next, next issue was, tell us what's wrong with the business. So give us a diagnosis, and they did. ESCOM came out and said, we are 33% overstaffed. We have to start a process by September 2019 where we need to cut about 16,200 jobs after they did an audit for six months. Mm. They, they went to the government and said, here's the outcome of the audit. And they also went to the government and said, the financial problem can be solved via strengthening the balance sheet. You decide, uh, shareholder, if we are going to hike electricity, we de you decide if we're going to sell uh, assets or you're going to put more money in. And the government opted to put more money in and said, you're not cutting jobs. So uh, you, mm. you spoke about... So uh, and that's the, the can further down the yes. road. So the so government we, are, we, are, we are so good at kicking the can down the road. It's the same thing with SAA. 
I mean, these like levels of debt and the guarantees attached to them. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. If those debts are ever called in, it will sink the economy. But what do you do? You keep putting money in. And this is especially bad considering we are now effectively in an austerity environment. I mean, I know government departments told to cut expenditure by 7%, 6%, 7 in consecutive years. So that's, that's, those job cuts are happening elsewhere in environments where those job cuts cannot be afforded. But ESCOM, where you have a clear mandate or clear indication that, in fact, there are positions that are being occupied that are not necessary, you're scared to make that cut. And this quarter we have um, Tisetso joining us from Business Day. Welcome. Thank you. Tisetso, I was going to ask, Davos. Davos has been happening this week. It's, it's this annual gathering in Switzerland where so many business leaders go. We send a delegation ourselves and it gets much column inches in the newspapers. Um, but there seems to be this, this weird this weird hypocrisy about it that it's you know it's, it's business leaders and capitalists going there to lecture the world about the evils of capitalism um does anything tangible ever come out of davos why do we talk about it so much look <laughs> rob i mean from where i stand i mean it's i mean davos is really i mean it's it's a must attend for a lot of people if you are a business leader if you are a politician uh, not particularly for the headline the main event i mean people are there for side deals i mean a lot of good deals are being struck on the sidelines of, 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 of Davos. So that's, that's, that's primarily the reason why people go. So it's a networking opportunity. Really, yeah. Sikhanati, um, I mean, now that ESCOM's not, not at um, Davos, we can talk about it. Um, do, you <laughs> think, do you think Davos is weaker for ESCOM's absence? <laughs> <laughs> Rob, the, the most important question is, what is South Africa's message yes. in Davos? What is Tito Mboweni going to tell uh, divorce that or ideally you should say guys we are we are up and running we fixed ESCOM we fixed South African Airways we promised here this government that I am now leading promised two years ago that we would restructure the the South African economy the structure and make sure that this economy is working uh, we will split ESCOM into three we will pay down the debt we will South African Airways all of it absolutely Nothing has happened. Mm. So the what will be the message? Absolutely nothing has happened. Uh, I mean, a, a week before Davos, the, the, the IMF downgraded our, 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 our growth prospects for this year. The World Bank has now said we'd be very lucky if we hit 0.9%. Uh, Two years ago, we thought we would be growing at about 3% per annum this year. Uh, the reason is simple. Absolutely nothing has happened in terms of what Cyril Ramaphosa has promised and, and, and uh, uh, Tito Mboweni's predecessor and Nene as finance minister. They went in there and said, we have now put a stop to this corruption. We'll get the state working again. It is not. So at Davos, there was, a, there was various surveys released. The World Economic Forum survey showed, for example, it had a new social mobility survey which talked of 82 countries, and it showed that South Africa was amongst the worst, I think 78th or 80th when it comes to education, healthcare, a lot of the things that you'd expect this government to have addressed or at least be addressing. You know, it, it's, it said it was so bad that it'll take an average low-income family nine generations to move up to a middle-income layer. Karen, how do you go to Davos and attract investors with a message like that, when you haven't addressed anything, like Sakonati said, that you said you would two years ago? Well, I mean, we must remember that South Africa is a predominantly youthful country. You know, the majority of our citizens are young. 
And this issue around education is speaking to your future. It speaks to what are the prospects of your children of today, tomorrow, being able to really propel themselves upwards, get the education that they need and become functional and contributing members of society. And whether you, where you increasingly have an education system that profoundly speaks to what we're known for, which is gross inequality, most unequal country in the world, um, we have been reported to be, um, then, then what do what do investors see? They see a tiny proportion of very privileged children who are going to make it into the upper echelons of society and possibly leave. And then this vast majority of young children who don't have any prospects of even a basic proper education. I mean, there have been studies released where children, the levels of comprehension, reading, writing, arithmetic, these are basic building blocks of education that not have not have been that have not been addressed. So I mean, unless you can and investors want to look at a long term like long term prospects. So in the absence of coherent plans around ESCOM, coherent plans around SAA, a clear desire and intention and, and um, to, to actually make those tough decisions and to say we need to cut jobs, we need to restructure, we need to uh, you know, look at how we make this entity profitable for the good of us all. And then this, this very depressing social picture of continued and worsening social inequality, I think any investor would look at that and say, hell no. So, to say, so, you know, the UK Business Forum happened this week as well, UK-Africa Business Summit. And we often think that people should invest in South Africa for, you know, because it's a, it's a for sentimental reasons, perhaps. Uh, but actually, the list of deals that was announced, I think it was 35 deals I saw, South Africa wasn't on it. It was Nigeria, it was Ghana, it was Ethiopia. And Sekinati wrote quite a, quite a compelling column about the importance of Ethiopia and how well it's done compared to this country. Um, what does that say about the fact that investors really, they look at the bottom line, you can talk about sentiment and how you're going to fix things, but people want to see an improved country and they're not going to put your money into a country where that money could vanish. Yeah, that's, that's very true, <coughs> Rob. Um, but before I answer your question, I was just going to add to what Karen was saying about the, the social mobility survey. I mean, at South Africa, we spend uh, maybe 48% our budget on education, but mm -hmm. we we've got nothing to show for it. And and the, the issue of inequality, I mean, it's something that's been highlighted by global media from Thai, the Time magazine, which put out that huge photo showing how unequal South Africa is. So it's something really foundational has to change about how we do things, so that we are able to address this main issue, this inequality issue. Because if we don't. Um, there could be a revolution if you have people sitting on that they don't have opportunities, they, they, can't, they can't get jobs because there are no jobs available. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, going back to your question, though, um, yeah, I think, I think it is, I mean, it's, it, it shines an unforgiving spotlight on Cyril Ramaphosa and the country as well. If, I mean, if you've got a country, the economy that has not grown in the past 10 years, in fact, uh, some some analysts say it's stuck in its lowest downward spiral since the 1940s. So there's really no opportunity. I mean, you want to get in where you've got policy and policy certainty, um, where you you've, the the economy is pumping. I mean, you sh we should be able to do that. I mean, we've got a young population, as you say, and people that are ready and that they want to work. So it's a it's an indictment on on, on us. Sikonati, just getting back to, to what we talked about, Ethiopia, for example, you contrasted Ethiopia's fortunes, how they have a, they're dropping now to, say, 9% GDP growth, when we can only dream of those kind of figures. What have they done right that we've done wrong? What they have done is they, they the first thing, they divorced themselves from this 
a, a very romantic illusion of socialism and what it can do. Uh, they, they, we are still, on the other hand, hunkering for the failed and tried policies of the Soviet Union. Uh, Ethiopia says, okay, we want to grow this economy. We will sell these state-owned entities that have been failing the farmers. Bloomberg News did a quite a brilliant story where they went to sugarcane farmers and, and what kind of prices they have been getting from the government, from the state-owned Ethiopia Sugar Corporation. And, and they say now the fortunes, our fortunes will be changing because one will buy steaks as the farmers will buy steaks in the mill and we will uh, process our own sugar and sell it to, uh, to, 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 to the, to, out to the market. So uh, Ethiopia is privatizing a lot of things, inviting investors in, and it's standing uh, uh, back and, and letting them do what they need to do. But also, most importantly, the leadership of uh, uh, the leadership in Ethiopia, youthful, well-educated people who have uh, had run their, who've run businesses and, and things like that. In South Africa, the, the ones shouting the loudest are afraid of being jailed for corruption, run for president and run for parliament. That's the difference. Talking of things we have done wrong and people who shouldn't be anywhere near government, um, there's a guy I think of, a guy called Jacob Zuma, uh, Karen. <laughs> and um, Jacob Zuma has been fighting not to appear at the Zondo Commission. Um, can you just run through where the status is of that? I mean, he filed these extensive papers that looked like, you know, the former president's postcards from the edge. Can you give us some insight into what he said? Well, no. Well, his contention is that um, the legal team for the Zondo inquiry was completely misconceived in their application to summons him because he has never said he's not willing to testify. He just says he has a very serious medical condition which requires him to go overseas. Reportedly, we've heard stories about him going to Cuba. He's lying a medical condition now. Rob, you know, I really... Anyway, moving swiftly <laughs> along... Um, so he's saying basically, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, now he's made this extraordinary offer to DCJ Raymond Zondo to say, come and meet with the head of the military doctor who heads up my medical team and he will disclose my medical situation to you. It's a, it's a national security issue and it's a travesty that I should be required to disclose this, but you can do it. So this entire weird situation around the health has now foisted the deputy judge president, uh, chief justice into a situation where he meets with this medical doctor and then does what? So in many respects, the artful chess playing of Jacob Zuma may have actually have quite a profound effect here because I don't know how Zondo is going to navigate this if, if this military doctor discloses whatever he discloses. What, what exactly does he do with and, that? And, and Zondo's move there, his response uh, after meeting, if he will, uh, is quite impactful in the sense that there's a criminal trial that should start mm, exactly. in Feb. Uh, so if, if the deputy judge, uh, uh, chief justice here says, this he is man six, is, not, yeah. is not fit to, to sit before me and answer questions. Uh, of course, we have seen him singing and dancing, which I think is more difficult than just and sitting and talking. That will impact directly on the criminal case for a, a 10-year-old or 15-year-old criminal case that he should go through in the, in the Peter Morisbeck High Court on the allegations of corruption and fraud uh, that he landed one Shabir Sheikh in jail. And so, this is why I love him, because he raises a very salient issue, because one of the things that's come up is this issue of memory loss um, linked to his health, linked to his medical condition, which was an argument... That never happened at ESCOM. Yeah. <sighs> it was, was raised in his permanent stay application. 
Yes. This, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was raised in his permanent stay application. And obviously, you know, he's saying that's one of the aspects of forensic prejudice he will suffer. So Sikonati is totally on the nose. If Zondo turns around and said, actually, you know what, I, I accept that he is unwell. If he has this meeting, it has repercussions far beyond just the realms of the Zondo Commission. But to say so, critically, if Jacob Zuma does not appear at the Zondo Commission, that's like having, you know, a, a, a meeting at the Vatican without the Pope. I mean, it's basically, this is the man who needs to be there. This is the man who must account. How does the Zondo Commission retain any credibility if the one person who should have been there from the beginning, Jacob Zuma, doesn't appear? What does um, it do to the credibility? I mean, uh, you would think that that's the idea from Zuma, provided that you believe that he's not sick. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I probably would have accept his medical note um, if I was... Zondo, that you see, you've got a medical note. But anyway, um, that 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 really, that's really the point. I mean, because that's the idea uh, that he has. That if you, you know, if he's not there to answer the, those allegations himself, and this whole thing, it loses its own its credibility, as he has said before, because he said that this whole thing is a political, yeah. is politically motivated. Yes. Karen, there's one last thing I wanted to cover. Um, John Lope, the mm. judge president of the Western Cape um, Court. I mean, there's, there's a fantastic uh, series of developments there that, could, either, that has wide ramifications for the credibility of our judiciary at the same time. Well, John Lope is currently in the midst of a over decade long, um, you know, misconduct hearing by the Judicial Service Commission into allegations that he tried to influence two constitutional court judges to rule in favor of Jacob Zuma in his challenge to the warrants that the Scorpions used to seize 92,000 documents that would ultimately be used as evidence against him in his corruption trial. He is now facing allegations, extraordinary allegations by Deputy Judge President uh, Patricia Goliath, who works with him at the Western Cape High Court. That essentially, not only has he assaulted a judge, um, you know, that there's been all kinds of victimization, abuse, etc., etc., but that he may have sought to influence the appointment of the two judges that heard that incredibly important challenge by Earthlife Africa and SAFSE to the intergovernmental agreement that was concluded between Energy Minister Tina Jumat-Peterson and Rosatom, the nuclear, Russian nuclear agency, and that during a conversation over this, he said that criticism against President, as he then was, Jacob Zuma, over the nuclear deal was unwarranted. So the JSC is now seized with this. They need to decide whether or not this amounts to uh, something that's worth investigating in terms of a gross misconduct allegation. But it amounts to an extraordinary crisis. And this is a story that's just going to keep on rolling for the next few weeks or Last months or years. Last words, on this, on this issue. One of the institutions that have held us, made us proud of the last couple of years was the judiciary. How, I mean, how serious is this in light of the fact that that was one of the things that we didn't think was too broken? It's a John and Goliath uh, battle that, that, that we are going to witness. But the issue about John Lope has, it's 10 years old. There are allegations that have still not been resolved yeah. regarding John Lope's conduct that are they were laid back in 2008, but uh, there's something else again about the judiciary, which is, it seems, not able to regulate itself as well as it should. Uh, judge Nkola Mutata, the sober judge, he still has those issues that have not been answered. Yes, indeed, it is the judiciary that has stood between a completely failed state and, 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 and some uh, semblance of, of normality and the rule of law. If it, if, if it has senior and powerful people like John Klope, if they have these unresolved questions to answer, God help us all. Well, there you have it. And those are the last words from um, the brightest light in journalism, who's now Eskom's spokesman. Um, Keep the lights on. Good night. Keep the lights on for us. <laughs>
<laughs> Guys, thanks a lot for joining us. Join us again next week for some more um, fantastic insight into the news issues of the day.